spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Welcome into the latest episode of the Five Reasons Podcast. I'm Ethan Skolnick. Might be joined by Chris Whittingham here a little bit later. But today I'm going to bring on a guest who was very popular the last time that we had him on. We want to do a little bit of Dolphins here. We're gearing up for the NFL draft. Obviously, you're going to want to check out three yards per carry. They're posting this week. Simon Clancy's had a bunch of nuggets uh, out on Twitter. You should check out at SI Clancy, also at CK Parrot. At Uptown Report to check out all of their information. They've been tracking who the Dolphins have been visiting with. Uh, but today we're going to visit again with Kyle Krabs. Now, the last time I talked to Kyle, he had one job, and now he has two. And the reason I, one of the reasons I appreciate well, you probably have more than that, but two that I'm following. Um, and the reason I appreciate it is because I'm doing some stuff over at Dolphin Maven, and every day I'm looking for Dolphin content. And I feel like uh, the USA Today uh, wire has been populated here like every three minutes. I mean, how often are you posting dolphin content now? Well, uh, th- this was fun. This, uh, this picked up for me uh, the second week in February, so right before the combine rolled around. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to write five or six posts or snippets of varying lengths and degrees every single day. So I just want to express my gratitude for Chris Greer for speaking uh, at the the meetings to give me some fresh content so I don't have to speculate on potential free agent targets for the Dolphins and trying to connect dots. I can just kind of take it straight from the horse's mouth for a couple days. It's a nice, refreshing change. Yeah, no doubt about it. And uh, and obviously, we, we hope that uh, Chris Greer is going to speak even more as we go forward to get a little better sense of his plan. But you can follow Kyle at Grinding the Tape. That's the best way to get him and all of his content over at Dolphin Wire on USA Today, which, as I said, a lot of which I kind of aggregate and repopulate uh, Dolphin Maven with. So I'm, so I'm trying to get my group to get going. Also, check out uh, our website. It, that one's coming on April 1st. April Fool's, the only day we could possibly launch a website with my group. Provided that they all get trained by then, we will be uh, posting on Monday, April 1st. Everything's going to be free, so no paywall like the local newspapers. I've got 12 columnists on our staff that are going to be writing regularly, plus all, all the local sports news and all the major teams, all our podcasts in one place for Google and for Android. Also, merchandise. We've got a bunch of new uh, Five Reasons Sports hats and shirts on there that you can pick up, plus Justice Better stuff, Miami Heat Beat stuff, Balls Cast stuff. So all that's going to be on Five Reasons sports.com but what we want to do with Kyle today though is the only thing that Dolphin fans really care about which is are they going to draft a quarterback this year and I I know that the focus has turned to 2020 and to Tua and you know maybe even further down the line where you look at a certain quarterback from Clemson but obviously you know the Dolphins are being are going to be in position to take a quarterback this year they signed Ryan Fitzpatrick that's a stopgap move they've got a couple of young quarterbacks on the roster already but I don't think anybody's projecting them to be long-term starters so I want to go through this with Kyle a little bit and sort of see I guess two things one would you like the fit with the Dolphins um, and, and two, you know, what is the potential upside for the particular quarterbacks in this draft? Because this has been described as a bad quarterback draft, particularly compared to 2020 and what we might be looking at with Trevor Lawrence possibly in 2021. But we want to go through some of these guys. So we're going to start right at the top. 
of here with Kyle. And, and let's just go to a guy who I know RCK Parrott was hyping when everybody thought he was probably going to play baseball or he might end up a second round pick. And now he could be the first overall pick in the draft, which is Kyler Murray. Where do you think he goes? And if you were the Dolphins, would you make any kind of a move to go up and get him? Uh, I expect Kyler to go in the top five. I think if he goes one, I think there's some trade involved. I know that we're, there's continuing to be this drumming that the, the Cardinals might be interested in Kyler and I think it's a lot of posturing for them right now. I don't think they're actively looking to trade Josh Rosen, uh, but I do certainly think it's a realistic possibility that Arizona does trade out of that spot, and Oakland has expressed interest in some of these quarterbacks, so whether they're jumping up to ensure that they get a guy that they want if they want to change quarterbacks or if a team feels like we need to get in front of Oakland and some of these other teams with the Jets who are potentially interested in trading back – or the, the 49ers who probably aren't trading back, if they want to be proactive and go up and get him, Arizona's really trying to get the interest for this first pick up. So Kyler, for the Dolphins, it'd be a really rich buy to go from 13 to 1 for a player who unquestionably has a really live arm, is a really explosive athlete. But there's just some translation-type stuff with his game that I have some personal concerns with as far as his style of play, not even getting into the height necessarily or the size necessarily, but kind of the field vision and and being more general accuracy versus pinpoint accuracy in certain areas of the field. Uh, I think that's one of the areas that the height does show up for him when he has to kind of throw over offensive linemen and throw with touch. It leads to some more variance in his throws in the uh, shallow and intermediate areas of the field. Now, if you get him on some timing drops and he's thrown to the sideline, the speed outs, the deep outs, the deep balls, he's money there. And if that's where you want to make your hay as an offense, I think that's where Kyler Murray becomes a much more attractive fit for your team. So, you know, again, and I, like you said, you don't want to mention the height. Um, but it's interesting to me that the narrative flipped on this so quickly because I, sometimes we see narratives build on certain players and you never sort of get out of them. And, again, we've gone from a place where – I was hearing, and I don't know that these were sort of respected draft analysts, but the general sort of, I guess, Twitter chatter was, is Kyler Murray even an NFL quarterback? Like I was seeing some of it, like, is he just too short? To, you're hearing stuff you used to hear with Doug Flutie. Like, is he, is he even an NFL quarterback? Should he make a decision to play on the NFL as opposed to taking all this guaranteed money uh, to play for the A's? And now, like you said, he's a top five pick. Why did that happen? Because, I mean, he's no taller than he was, uh, uh, you know, a month ago. Like, why, why the narrative shift? Well, I think it's kind of a two-pronged affair here. One of it is uh, the quarterback class in general. All of these prospects have significant holes in their resume. And then you look at the style of play in today's NFL. You realize some of the concessions that the league is willing to make to protect quarterbacks in general, and it really diminishes and minimizes some of the durability concerns with a Kyler Murray when he's passing from the pocket because you can't just tee off on him anymore. You can't throw him around and ragdoll him and drop him on his head. You can't even land on him anymore. So I think as we really put Kyler under the microscope, it's like, yeah, he's really talented. He's got a great arm. But, and then you think about it a little bit more, you connect some more dots, and you're willing to kind of gloss over the general, the, the fact that he doesn't fit the general prototype as far as a build because we need a top quarterback in the class and the demand for quarterbacks, there's five or six teams that could use a new quarterback. So I, I think it's been really eye-opening to see a guy like Patrick Mahomes come from this spread offense 
in, in Texas Tech and go to Kansas City and just absolutely tear up the league. And people see the, the kind of resume and, and background that Kyler Murray has and kind of that same dynamic arm talent to his game. And uh, that is really the trump card that is winning out over so many other variables. All right, so let's talk about somebody who does um, have some of the measurables that, that teams are typically looking for, which is Dwayne Haskins, and uh, particularly as related to the Dolphins, because the Dolphins are at 13. My personal belief, for exactly the reason you said, that teams always overdraft quarterbacks because there's always teams that talk themselves into somebody because they need something to sell the fans because they're tired of the guy that they have because they don't know when they're going to get a chance to take the next one. That we've seen guys like a Christian Ponder or an EJ Manuel or a lot of these other guys that get drafted a lot higher than they should or that we thought they were going to get drafted. And then the weird thing is you see an Aaron Rodgers slip down to the end of the first round just because he was coached by somebody who coached a lot of guys who didn't end up working out in the NFL. But basically, you've got a guy in Haskins, uh, Dwayne Haskins from Ohio State, who has the measurables, has the size, uh, seems to have the makeup for it also. Do you think, before we get into his ability, do you think he makes it to 13? I think there's a very realistic chance. I, I think the biggest threat to Dwayne making it to 13 is Cincinnati at 11. And that's obviously because they're kind of they're kind of done with Andy Dalton at this stage, right? I mean, I mean they have yeah. they, and it's a coaching change, right? So I mean, Marvin was there to kind of protect Andy for all of those years. I mean, they don't even have they don't even have a young backup that they like at this stage. I guess the question would be for Cincinnati: Why would you not take him? If that was the case, I mean, if, if you've if you've gone, what is it, eight, nine years with Andy and it hasn't you don't have a playoff win to show for it. Right. It, it's it's kind of the he's a, been a more reliable, more productive version of Ryan Tannehill. Really, if you think about it, as far as his career trajectory has been, uh, he had a little bit more success early in his career than what Ryan did. But as you said, no playoff wins. And he's very stagnant as a player. You know exactly who he is. You know exactly what you're going to get. He's not going to be a guy that consistently puts the team and the offense on his back and carries them down the field and beats teams in clutch situations. And he's reached that point where the physical peak has come and gone. And mentally, you know, his mentality doesn't really translate to a lot of big-time clutch end results at the end of football games. And with the coaching change, Zach Taylor coming in there, they're, they're obviously with his passing pedigree and everything that they're interested in doing based off his working relationship with Sean McVay it just makes sense that quarterback is a very kind of under the radar. People want to peg them linebackers again, but, but quarterback's kind of an obvious, in my opinion, need for the Bengals. All right. So let's go through Haskins a little bit. What do you like and what concerns you? Yeah. So he's kind of the inverse of Kyler Murray, which is, is really interesting as far as uh, this, the places where Dwayne wins for me is anticipatory throws, throwing into holes in zone coverage, uh, a lot of stuff over the middle of the field when he's in timing drops and he's, he's really able to see these route breaks developing and he can kind of thread the needle in between the numbers, in between the hashes. I think that's where he's at his absolute best. He really, for being a guy that has a big arm, he really struggles with the deep ball consistency as far as his placement down the field. So he's a guy I think is going to be more predicated on run after the catch threats, which is interesting when you think about who the Dolphins have on the receiver uh, roster right now and the, the guys that they have and the strengths and weaknesses of those players. I think Dwayne's probably a little bit more friendly in setting those guys up for success. Uh, Dwayne is not very good with pressure. Uh, no quarterback's obviously good when they're getting hit in the mouth, but but Dwayne really one of my primary concerns is the mobility within the pocket. He's a slider. He's not a guy that's able to flush or get outside the pocket at all. And when he does, 
his accuracy really wanes in those situations, kind of the inverse of Kyler Murray, like I said. So very different stylistic players. Uh, I think Dwayne's much more of a quote-unquote point guard, a guy that can distribute, get the ball out, let his playmakers make plays in his hands, where Kyler's more uh, the shot creator who's going to hold the ball wait for something to develop he's going to take his big shots down the field he's always looking for more big plays pushing the ball with his own talents instead of Dwayne being a guy who disperses that football so let's look behind the Dolphins a little bit you mentioned Cincinnati potentially at 11 Um, is there a team I mean Arizona did it last year to go up and get Josh Rosen obviously different regime there now but is there a team beneath the Dolphins right now that you think needs a quarterback that could jump up ahead of them if, if again, they just want to sit there and be patient and try to wait for him to come to them? Yeah, I think Washington at 15 and New York Giants at 17. I know New York has the pick at six, but, you know, they, they just really have not seemed like they're really dialed in. And then they getting this second first-round pick has opened up a lot of options for them if they want to go best player available and then part with you know, whether it's a, a day two pick this year and a day two pick next year and jump up a couple spots, a handful of spots, and try and get aggressive and, and snipe them off Miami's plate. Uh, Giants are a team to watch, but I think the real threat is, is Washington because they don't know what they have going on with Alex Smith. You know, Alex Smith's injury has, has put his entire career in speculation going forward now. They have a lot of money wrapped up in quarterback. They obviously traded, brought in Case Keenum. But if you're going to bring in another quarterback to try and set yourself up for the long term, it makes sense that it's going to be a quarterback on a rookie deal, and they're only two spots behind Miami. All right, so let's go to the third quarterback. Uh, would you say – I don't know if there is a consensus on this, but it seems like there's a developing consensus that Drew Locke is the third guy. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. I think some people will probably favor Locke over Haskins which might be a surprise to hear. I know there's some, some people in our, our group in our room at the Draft Network that feel this way, that Locke is the second quarterback. Um, his season was really a tale of two halves. If you watch the second half of his season, starting at the Kentucky game and onward, where they played uh, Florida in that stretch, they played Oklahoma in the bowl game in that stretch, he was phenomenal in the second half of the season. Now, the problem is they played all the best teams on their schedule in the first half of the season, and he was abysmal. So you you really don't know which Drew Locke you're going to get as a senior quarterback. He's super established as a passer, but they've had a ton of coaching flux there. So he's kind of just been through the tumbler. Not a lot of consistency around him. His advocates will say and point to, well, the second half of the season was with the, this offensive coordinator that they brought in this past offseason. Things kind of solidified and gelled, and this is what you can get at the next level. Uh, he's got, I think, more arm talent than Dwayne Haskins does. He's got some really impressive off-platform throws where he's not able to step in stride or he has to kind of throw around pass rushers. And in those situations, he's got some really eye-popping plays. But as bad as Dwayne is with pressure, Drew's probably worse as far as he just makes some boneheaded throws trying to get the ball out against pressure. So he's kind of one of those guys that you live by the sword and you die by the sword. All right, we've seen over the years that previous Dolphin regimes have taken a lot of quarterbacks in the second round with kind of mixed success. Well, mixed is probably is probably putting it kindly. Um, you know, your Pat Whites and your your John Becks and your your Chad Hennies uh, were all uh, all second round selections. Um, if if Drew Locke is there in the second round, do you take a flyer on him? Oh, I think there's no question. I think there's a, a legit chance that he goes ten to Denver, though. Okay. Okay. So you so you think he goes that soon? I, so all right. So let, let me put it to you this way: if he's there at thirteen, do you take him? If Haskins, 
Haskins is not there, it, do you take Locke? Because it seems like you think Haskins is a good fit for what the Dolphins' current personnel. Yeah, I think that Haskins is probably the best fit for the current personnel. The question is, how much upheaval do you want to introduce, obviously, with this new coaching staff that you've brought in? Uh, or do you want to stay true to what you guys have on the roster and kind of slowly phase it from there over the course of the next couple seasons? As far as Locke at 13, he's not graded there for me. I can understand why they would do it, but I personally would not advocate for Drew Locke at 13 relative to if you're going to take a quarterback in the first round, it's probably going to put you out of the running for the upcoming crop of quarterbacks. And there's probably three quarterbacks in the 2020 group that I would hold in a higher regard than what I currently hold Drew Locke. All right. So let's go through some of these rapid fire. And basically what, what I'd like is you tell me sort of what round you think they go in and B, if you were the Dolphins, if you would strike for this player, if they haven't obviously taken a quarterback uh, by that point. Daniel Jones. Uh, I would pass on Daniel Jones. I think Daniel Jones goes anywhere from 17 to New York to somewhere in the early second round. He's too much of what you already had in Ryan Tannehill. Jared Stidham. Uh, Stidham probably goes round three, round four. Uh, he's a player in that range that you could advocate for the Dolphins taking advantage of. He was not done any favors with what they ran offensively at LSU. I think he'd be a player that would really thrive for some run after catch receivers instead of being a guy that had to try and constantly push the ball vertically down the field. Will Greer. Will's an interesting one. Uh, Will's probably in that same range, round three, round four. Uh, I think he's a career backup is his career trajectory. Um, he's just a little too wild for me. I don't think he'd be a good fit in Miami, although I will say his best work came when he was in rhythm, getting the ball out, a lot of gun, three-step game, uh, thrown inside of 10 yards. Clayton Thorson from Northwestern, kind of seen as a sleeper. Uh, Clayton's kind of a sneaky athlete for a guy that's a pocket passer, but he has so much variance in his arm and, and inaccuracies in his game and poor decisions. He, he's one of the, the leaders in this year's quarterback clue class in interceptions thrown so i'm not particularly interested in adding clayton thorson and somebody we really haven't seen much of um and there was a chance that she was going to play for the university of miami tyree jackson yeah uh tyree i think he's going to go earlier than what the dolphins would get involved with uh in spending some time and talking to some folks at the combine it sounds like tyree's got a legit chance to go round two round three just based on the tools that he has, which is uh, a little rich for my blood. I think if you're talking round four, round five, you know, that's a home run as, as far as swinging on the upside. But some, some people in the league are really, really interested in taking a big hack at Jackson's upside. He's just a very high variance passer. He he's, requires a lot of space to operate within the pocket as well. All right. And final one here. This is a three yards per carry favorite has been for a little while. Easton Stick. Yeah, I, I know. I talked to Chris at the Shrine game in person about Easton and uh, I'm not crazy about Easton. I understand what the appeal is, you know, small school kid. He's got some nice work within the pocket, which is such a refreshing change from what the Dolphins have not had for so long now. So I'm not buying on Easton stick as potentially being a day two passer, but if you get anywhere into round five, round six, round seven, I think that's a sweet spot where it's worth taking an investment and rolling the dice on a small school kid like an Easton stick, uh, who I just think is, you know, physically, athletically is very good, but I don't think from an arm talent perspective, uh, he's quite where you would want to hang your hat if you were trying to build an offense around a quarterback. All right, and a bonus question for you. This is the tough one. Who starts more games for the Tennessee Titans this year? Ryan Tannehill or Marcus Mariota? You got to factor. Marcus, 
factor too. I'm gonna say Marcus Mariota, but I think Ryan Price starts four or more games next year. Right. And that's, uh, I, I think, I think you're right. I could, I think it could be more. I don't, I just don't trust, just don't trust Marcus to stay healthy, um, which was, which is why they made the move, why it made sense for them to bring in somebody with some experience. All right. We really appreciate the time. We promise next time Chris will be on with you because this is twice. It's not, it's not personal. I can, I can guarantee you that. Um, but check him out at grinding the tape. Kyle Krabs also check him out on dolphins wire. Like I say, he's posting five or six pieces a day over there on all the Dolphins content, particularly leading up to the draft. And as I mentioned, uh, dial in the three yards per carry here too over the next few weeks because they're going to be doing a ton of stuff on the website and also on their podcast. And now I'm going to be joined by Chris and we're going to talk a little Heat basketball and Chris Bosch. All right, now that we covered some Dolphins, let's switch over to the Heat. Going to be joined by my usual partner here, Chris Whittingham. We're going to talk about Chris Bosch, who, as we speak today, his jersey, his number one, is being retired to the rafters uh, during and prior to the game against the Orlando Magic. Big game for the Heat, actually, and we'll we'll cover that uh, a little bit later in the week where the playoff picture is. But we want to focus on Bosch today. And sort of, I thought this was interesting. You know, Chris played, I guess, five plus seasons with the Heat. Obviously, the four seasons, the big three. And then he had the two situations with the blood clots. Had to retire prematurely. It was ugly at the end. Um, they've since patched things up. He's been around the team. He's done a bunch of interviews praising the Heat of late. He's finally come to terms with the fact he's not going to play anymore. And so the Heat decided to retire his jersey. And before we get into some Chris Bosch stories and our hope that Chris is going to join us on the pod here, uh, I've been told in the next couple of weeks, um, I just wanted to get into a Jeff Perlman tweet because we, we've had Jeff on the podcast. He was terrific. He wrote a book about uh, the USFL, which I know uh, we enjoyed talking to him about. He, he's written a bunch of books, including uh, one about uh, the Lakers and Pat Riley called Showtime. And he tweeted yesterday sort of some, I don't know, some skepticism of the idea of somebody who played for as little time uh, with the Heat as Chris Bosch getting his jersey retired. And I thought it kind of missed the point. And, and, you know, the Heat have sort of become big at retiring jerseys lately. I mean, they retired Shaq's jersey. He played less time with the Heat than Bosch did and ended on even worse terms, in my view. Do you think this is the right gesture for the Heat? Yes, of course. And, and I don't think that these kinds of gestures have to be explained to people. They're for the fans of the team. They're for the team. And people here understood. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, maybe check the stats of the latest Miami Heat game? I've got a better idea. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I've benefited from therapy. I went through some life changes, major life events, had some difficulties, wasn't a believer in therapy, but it helped me and it can help you also. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Miami Heat today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Miami Heat. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. 
You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. The significance of what Shaq being traded here meant to Miami. It was your avenue to your first championship. But obviously, Dwayne Wade plays a massive part in that. Uh, but Shaquille O'Neal, again, further relevance uh, to the country. Uh, to me, it like there is a pre-Shaquille O'Neal and a post-Shaquille O'Neal era in Heat basketball in terms of national relevance because it was just such a huge trade. And, and I remember at the time it galvanized the city and, of course, leads to your first championship. And then Chris Bosh is a fundamental part of the big three. The three of them were icons in this market. Now, maybe LeBron and Dwayne are thought of as, as the big players, and hell, maybe even just LeBron, uh, just because of the way that, that LeBron is covered. And Dwayne never really got uh, the, the, the full amount of criticism that maybe LeBron did or wasn't really, uh, you know, that, that figure that drew that, that ire that, that LeBron did. But, I mean, I, maybe Chris Bosh was just kind of thought of in, in a different way. And I get it. Like, if you're a national media member that just looks at his numbers, maybe was watching those games, but not with any kind of emotion tied into it, I can understand how you come to that conclusion. But the, but the Heat organization don't have to explain it. And the Heat fans don't have to explain why they love Chris Bosh, why they think that it was like a, no doubt about it, guaranteed that he was going to have his jersey retired here. He was a fundamental part of – probably the most signature era of sports in the history of the city. And so, of course, he was going to have his jersey retired. But at the same time, I don't expect someone from outside of it to understand the emotional connection that was developed between the fans and the players on that team because it was so unique and particular to this city. Because the rest of the country thought about it from the perspective of hating it and criticizing it and picking it apart when we're, you know – tirelessly defending it and tirelessly supporting it we are going to feel different ways about this group of people than the rest of the country and that's okay like I and obviously Jeff Perlman I think Leif uh, from from Heat Beat said he, he he asked for thoughts and Jeff Perlman goes well I got them and yeah I mean and and that and that is the kind of galvanization that that Heat fans have you know done many a time before but uh but I, I i but that's the kind of galvanization that for me symbolizes why he's having his jersey retired tonight yeah it is and it, it does speak again to the different way that heat fans defended that team as the way as opposed to the way that other fans have defended their teams i mean you look at the lakers right now with lebron where laker fans have turned on lebron and kind of did from the very beginning and you look at the way that heat fans treated that group i, I don't think Heat fans will ever get enough credit for the way that they backed that team. Now, I will say that Chris was at times a little bit of a polarizing figure, even within Heat fans. I dealt with that a lot as a, you know, somebody who was tweeting off the games. I mean, there were a group of Heat fans that just did not think Chris was very good. Like, I, I mean, did not sort of understand what it was that he provided and focused on the rebound total incessantly. Like, if he had, you know, some two rebound, three rebound, four rebound games, I mean, you never heard the end of it. And any time they lost, it was Chris's fault. I remember, you know, the Hibbert battles, the Garnett battles in particular, those two where, you know, sometimes Chris did not get the best of them. It didn't really seem like he was up mentally for those particular matchups that it was getting in his head a little bit. He fans were all over him. So it did change. I think the blood clot situation changed a little bit. I think Chris deciding to resign with the team, even though a lot of people were not happy with the contract. And I know even Pat has acknowledged he should have probably taken care of Dwayne first. But <laughs> I think that, you know, the fact that Chris decided to stay, whereas LeBron decided to leave, I think endeared people to him. But from a personality standpoint, there was nothing not to love about him. 
Okay, and and I th- he was the rare athlete uh, who was loved by the fans for his personality, but also by the media. Where, you know, he was the type. I, I tweeted this today because we're kind of doing a Chris Bosh day on the Five Reasons account, and we're going to give away a Five Reasons T-shirt uh, to whoever has sort of the most unique story. But the first thing that comes to mind with me with Bosh is cologne. Because every time, what, what would happen was whenever you went to his locker after a game, he would do the scrum. But then unlike a lot of the other guys, he would stay and he'd hang out. And you, and you could take turns at him. I mean, Haberstroh, Coop, whatever, me, we would, Mike Wallace, like we would take turns talking to him for 5, 10, 20 minutes. And at some point, you knew Chris was ready to leave because he pulled out the bottle of cologne. And he would spray the cologne in the air and sort of waft his head around in it. And so you always came out of locker room smelling like Chris Bosch. Like that was, the, <laughs> so, so I, many, many, many a night I came home smelling like Chris Bosch. I mean, imagine the looks you get when you come home and you're wearing some cologne you'd never worn before. But that's, that's, that's what I remembered with Chris. Cause it was so much his personality, the, the, fo- the video bombing, the, his part in the Harlem shake. Okay. All the rest of that stuff. Like he became into his extent, like a lot of that team did sort of a cultural, you know, icon. And with that being said, there were issues. I mean, at times, you know, LeBron, I remember during the Hibbert situation, LeBron was asked, you know, and he was like, he's got to figure it out. (laughs) You know, I mean, it it wasn't always perfect. Some people focused on the numbers. And I think sometimes they got away from, this is the guy who came over as an admittedly bad defender. I mean, he told me that I was not a good defender in Toronto and he became the linchpin of their defense. I mean, as good as Dwayne and LeBron were guarding the passing lanes and as good as Mario could be on the ball and Norris, he was the lynch and Shane, obviously, but he was the linchpin to their defense. He was the guy who made it work by being able to get out on shooters and really was the modern big as we speak about it. And, and I think those are all things that should be celebrated tonight. Agreed. And, and I, I do kind of think you're right that the journey with Chris Bosch has to be chronicled as well, because as, as the big three kind of came together, you're bringing a lot of uh, fans to this sport that, you know, obviously, you know, probably around for the Shaq titles and all that, but you know, are generally more football centric or even and not even fans of American sports because this big thing is happening. They're saying, let's get, let's get around it. And you're right. I mean, you know, a lot of people, you know telling Chris Bosch to eat more red meat and get bigger like you're you're too small and you're kind of thinking it's it's a lot of people who didn't really watch him in Toronto going well it's Dwayne Wade the guard LeBron James the forward and Chris Bosch the big man center who's going to be like your average big man center now the funny thing is that the game moved to him and that has to be so immensely frustrating uh for his health situation as, as we kind of move on in his career but uh yeah I mean I'm, I'm looking back at, at some of those games in the early years um in in a loss at New Orleans in 2010 uh one rebound and 15 points. I imagine he was not very well received at that point as he's kind of taking mid-range jumpers going, go to the rim, go to the rim. And he even talked about that frustration uh, on, on Levitard's podcast uh, the other day. But um, it, it, it's funny to me how, how the league kind of moved in his direction. But you're right. I mean, as much as, I, you know, I kind of started by saying, you know, universal acclaim, this was obvious and going to happen. Um, at the same time, there was a journey that, that happens. I wonder if, if in, in a speech tonight, uh, he addresses that to sort of the, the, the different uh, ups and downs, particularly towards the end, the downs. And, and, he, and he, he telling, uh, I mean, he's done so many interviews at this point, I don't even know which interview it was in, uh, that he you know, wanted to leave Miami because he couldn't deal with being around the same people every day. So he's been, a real, he's been on a real journey with this place, uh, kind of from the bottom at the beginning, well, the, the top at the beginning by being part of the big three, then the bottom of the early season struggles, and then 
kind of, you know, everyone on here realizing how great he is and how important he is, and then back down with the blood clot. So it, it was a real up and down journey. It was not just universal praise and acclaim all the way through, but uh, that, that for me kind of makes him an even more interesting figure in the history of the franchise. Yeah, and you mentioned the, the bad games. I remember a game in Chicago. I don't know if he was one of 17 or two of 18. I think one of those two. Um, and I just remember the vitriol on my Twitter feed that night for him, and he's a waste, and you should get rid of him. And remember, he was gonna, he was probably going to get traded. I mean, Pat's kind of acknowledged this. Like, if you go back to LeBron's Game 6 in Boston and the 45-point performance, the conversation we were having in the press room, there were a bunch of us, Ira, myself, and Joe Goodman, and, and, and the whole group that covered the team. And we were sitting there, and Shapiro, all the TV guys, and like, is this it for Spo and Bosch? Like, if they lost that game, right, with the way that that season had gone, you weren't trading Dwayne, you weren't trading Braun, something was going to change, okay? And you had to look at maybe moving Chris Bosch to see if there'd be a better fit. Not that it was Chris's fault, but how were they going to make this thing work? And obviously, you weren't going to split Dwayne and LeBron up. And, you know, and then suppose, you know, status was indefinite, I think, jeopardy at that stage. The Heat would never acknowledge that, but I, I think it was. I think if they, if they got eliminated there and they end up, they end up winning. Um, and obviously, look, Chris, you had the situation with Chris where he got hurt in the playoffs too. Um, they had to adjust to play a different way and then bring him back. And that kind of invented small ball to a large degree. I mean, Golden State will take credit for it, not for this era, but for the Don Nelson era. But in some ways, you know, Bosch getting hurt led to Battier at the four, which led to the positionless game that Spolster kind of invented. It is funny with Spo. It's like every year, like some unforeseen circumstance occurs that forces him to change into something innovative. It's, it's happened. It happened with those teams. It happened with, with uh, Bosch getting sick and, and Dang having to take over at the four. It happened this year with all the injuries and how he kind of settled into the rotation that I wanted all along because he had no choice because of everything that happened. But I, I think with Chris, I think that's part of his story is how close this was to failure so many times. And then you look back at it and the thing he was criticized for the most was the rebounding and it's his rebound yeah. that leads to Ray Allen's shot. And so it's just, I mean, again, there's so this, the history with this team is so rich and he's such a part of it. How could you not retire his jersey? In fact, I would make the case, some would not agree with me, I would make the case that I'm more fine with retiring his than Shaq's because Chris never did anything to disparage the organization, okay? He was frustrated that he couldn't play anymore. They were trying to do the right thing. They were also trying to protect their interests, but they were trying to do the right thing. I, I truly believe that with that. I, I've never blamed them for the Bosch situation. I blame them for Dwayne but I'm, and, and for some for LeBron, but never for the Bosch situation. But he, he wanted to play. Shaq was different. Shaq didn't want to play anymore. Shaq bashed Pat on the way out. Shaq bashed Chris Quinn, of all people, on the way out. Okay, nicest guy in the world. Uh, and Ricky Davis, you know. And so, uh, to me, I, I would put Bosh ahead of Shaq in terms of the way I view him. I know not in terms of impact on the franchise, but in terms of the way I view him. In fact, Chris, I want to pivot to this. I, I view his story very much like Zoe's. Um, very different personality, completely the opposite. I mean, Chris is the most warm, welcoming. Zoe was, and he would acknowledge this, a pain in the ass to cover. I mean, just, <laughs> I mean, I mean he, he, he had it. I get along very well with Zoe now, but like, and I know people in our network do, and I have enormous respect for Zoe, but he was a pain in the ass to cover. I mean, Timmy was the guy we went to, and Zoe was, there was a Zoe day once a week. That's when you talk to him, and he was grumpy, and he would repeat himself constantly. And, you know, he's, he's changed into a statesman. And like I said, I, I couldn't have more respect for him than I do. Uh, but, but they're totally different personalities. But in terms of their journeys, I mean, Zoe, you know, when Zoe came to Miami, 
from Charlotte, there were questions about him. He wasn't happy in Charlotte. He wanted to be moved. Bosch, kind of the same thing. Like he'd sort of worn out his welcome in Toronto, right? Like or he decided he didn't want to be there anymore. Comes here. In Zoe's case, he had to sort of be the fulcrum of the franchise. Chris had a very different role where he had to be the third guy. And I'll always remember, I'll tell this one more before we pivot back to Zoe, but one story I'll always remember. So, you know, after LeBron went back to Cleveland, I asked Chris if he had a couple minutes. We're at a practice. And I was kind of going back and forth between Cleveland and Miami at that point, but more in Cleveland than Miami, unfortunately. So I was trying to get, you know, Chris and Dwayne whenever I could when I was in Miami. And so I said to Chris, I said, you got a couple minutes? And he said, yeah. And he said, sure, whatever. And so we sit down and we're talking. And it was literally a four-minute interview. It was a four-minute interview. I mean, I'd had long sit-downs. I had a long sit-down at the, at the Beverly Hills Hotel, whatever it's called, with Chris when he first signed. And he was kind of trepidatious and all the rest. But this was a four. He knew me, but it was a four-minute interview. And it was just basically about Kevin Love's transition to being the third wheel in Cleveland. And Chris, because it's the only way he can do things, answered honestly, right? Complete, you know, and said, I mean, it wasn't negative about LeBron. It really wasn't. But it was, you know, Kevin, you know, it's going to be hard because you, first, you know, you're at the buffet when you're the lead guy. And now all of a sudden it's, what's the waiter going to bring you today? Oh, I got a piece of bread. Thanks for that. You know, like, I mean, that was basically what he said. And it, it was about the transition that Kevin Love was going to have. And he was right because Kevin Love had it and ended up as I expected because I think I knew both a little bit. I got to know Kevin a little in Cleveland, not much, but I knew their personalities. Chris handled it much better than Kevin Love did. Okay. But it was about that whole thing. And I remember because we didn't run the story right away because my editor at Bleacher Report was an idiot. And so, because I'm like, this is a story, okay? Like, he, it's, he touched on LeBron, whatever. And then I flew to Brazil. And I'm in the, the uh, I'm, I stayed at the same hotel as the Heat in Brazil. And so I was, and Cleveland was about three miles away or kilometers, whatever they call it in Brazil. And so I'm in the elevator with Bosch and he just looks at me and, he, and I said, yeah, I said the story around today. He says, yeah, I saw. And I was like, okay, I'm sorry about that. Because what happened was it got blown up when it got aggregated as Bosch bashes LeBron, right? Like it's impossible right. to play with LeBron. It got like a million hits. But anyway, he was so gracious. We got off the elevator. He says, it's fine. I said it. And he walked off. And so, but that's to me, that's Chris. Like that's, yeah. he is who he is. He's completely genuine. Like I felt, I was like, I don't really want to run into Chris in the hotel <laughs> because I didn't, I didn't present it that way, but that's how it got pushed. But he was totally gracious and totally cool. And, and again, I think with him, with everything, he became appreciated more over time. I even think that's true of his teammates. I did a big story, and unfortunately, it ran the day that we found out Bosch was out the second time, okay? This is 2016. But I ran a big story where I talked to Gabrielle, um, Dwayne's wife, and to Adrian, Chris's wife, who I got to know a little bit, about the relationship that developed between Dwayne and Chris. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to have Bosch on the pod before the end, end of Dwayne's career. And it's interesting because Gabby talked a lot about how Dwayne didn't really appreciate Chris at first. You know, they knew each other because they had the same agent, Henry Thomas, but didn't really hang out. Like, Dwayne would go on the road with LeBron all the time, and they would go to, like, you know, chain restaurants. I mean, that's what they do or did. Okay, what? And he's like, and then LeBron left, and it was like LeBron and him are not friends. Like, LeBron and Dwayne are brothers. They're blood brothers. But with Chris, like, they became, like, friends. And he said, I'm so grateful. She said, Gabby says, I'm so grateful to Chris because Chris introduced Dwayne to so many things to wine, to good restaurants, to music, okay, to, they went to an electric dance, you know, one of those, whatever. Ultra festivals? Yeah, they went to festivals together, the four of them, okay, like, that's not, can you, I can't imagine Dwayne early in his career at an EDM, <laughs> at an EDM festival, okay, but that's, 
Chris introduced him to all this stuff. Chris, Chris, you know, introduced justice along with Amari justice to a lot of art. Okay. He's just a different kind of guy. And, and I think it takes time to appreciate him for everything that he is, all that he's interested in coding and all kinds of different stuff. And, and, you know, you, you go in the locker room before games and, you know, I mean, this was not a standard locker room. Like James Jones and Dwayne and Chris Bosch are reading, you know, philosophical and finance books, okay, in the locker room before games. And I just think it took time to appreciate. So I'm glad they're appreciating it today. But I want to throw a question at you before we close. I put this on our poll, and it's 50-50, like all our polls. <laughs> Who was better in their prime, Bosch Zoe? You know, because the, the, the thing about Bosch's prime is that He's never really led a good team, and that's harsh to say, but, I mean, he was, the third, he was the third player in the Big Three Heat, and his Toronto teams, he even said yesterday on Lebetard show, played in 11 playoff games. So, uh, so I'm going to go with Alonzo Mourning just because he was kind of, for me, the unquestioned leader of, a really, of really good Heat teams, and for me, kind of underratedly good Heat teams. They kind of don't really get tagged into the Shaq and the, and the Big Three era, but deserve to be just based off of regular season win totals. But, yeah, he was, he was the leader – of a really good team that went deep in the playoffs and just couldn't get past the Knicks um, or, or the Chicago Bulls. So I'm going to go with Alonzo, but not by much. And I think, uh, I think you know, it's funny for me to say, because generally I think, you know, young people have recency bias, thus the results of that Twitter poll. But, uh, but I, I'll go for Alonzo. Yeah, I, I, it is, to me, it's a fascinating question that I didn't really consider all the ramifications of it when I posted it, because it really does depend upon the era and the role. Right. So though was second in MVP voting before he got, he got sick. Okay. And Bosch was never at that level. Would he have gotten to that level if he'd been leading a team? Maybe, I don't know. It's possible. I, I believe he became a better all around player because he went to Miami. But if you swap them, because their roles are, are consistent with their eras. Like you mentioned, the era came around to Bosch even more so now, but he was a better fit for the modern era than Zoe. Okay. But Zoe was a better fit for his era. Like if you swap them, if you put Bosch on the Hardaway teams, I don't know if those teams compete even the way they did with the Knicks teams, but with that kind of level of physicality that was necessary, that level of intensity that Zoe provided. I mean, Bosch could scream, but Zoe, it was there all the time on overdrive, okay? So I don't know that Bosch fits there. At the same time, I don't know that Zoe fits on the big three team. I was trying to figure out, if you, if you put prime Zoe, 1999 Zoe, okay, with LeBron and Dwayne in this era, how does that look? Does Zoe just block shots? Because Zoe could be a little clunky in the post. Like he was not, and he wanted the ball there. Okay. Now he could make a 12 to 15 foot jumper, but he was, I don't know if Zoe ever would have developed, you know, the range that Bosch did. So I, I think, I think the way to look at it is, I think they were all both kind of perfect for their particular era. I do think Zoe was better suited from a temperament standpoint to be the lead guy. Um, once he got it under control, because early on he was getting a ton of technicals and all the rest. But once he got it under control, I think him being the face of it was better. But it's, I, I just looked again, man. It's at 2,700 votes, and it is 50-50. It's 50-50. Never happened before. No. <laughs> no, it never did. But it, it is amazing. And I think, I guess, it has a little to do with Big 3 versus longtime Heat fan Twitter. But like I said, you're more Big 3 in terms of your age bracket. And, and you went with you went with Zoe. Um, I think Bosch might have been a better all-around player, ultimately. But I, I think for the era that he was in, Zoe was perfect. So I, I think I, I will sort of dance around the question. All right. So we'll... Uh, so, 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 <laughs> oh, come on, man. Pick one. Let's I'll go. dance around my own question. I mean, let's put it this way. Like I said, I had more 
pleasant interactions with Chris over the years, and I was a little afraid of Zoe. Um, but I've developed it's not who you like more. It's but, who but, you but, but, I, but I've developed a relationship enough with Zoe now where I, I, I feel like I want to keep it that way. So um, I'm just going to split the difference and say, uh, say they were both better than Shaq. Can we do that? Because I don't really Fair care enough. about Shaq. Right, sure. that's fine. Sha- Shaq was Shaq was fine. Shaq stole my crutches a few times when he was here, but but otherwise, I, I don't think Shaq necessarily. I don't think he treated people on the way out the way that that the other two did. Although Zoe, Zoe, when you know that first time, man, like when he left, like for Jersey, you know, before all that, I mean, you know, he was trashing a lot of people all the way out the door too. So I, I mean, mm-hmm. it it gets you know everything gets made up uh, over time. All right, and I guess the next Jersey retirement is. Who is? Do you think they do Haslam and Dwayne together? You think they give them separate days? No, they'll give them separate days, I'd think. But uh, but yeah, I mean, if it, it would you now, if Udonis is going to kind of carry on with this idea of playing another season, then it's probably going to be Dwayne first. Um, but yeah, I mean, if I if I were the Heat, if you know, obviously, you know, Dwayne retires whenever the final game of this season is, I, I might even retire his jersey for the season opener next season. Like, why not? Like, just right. just get to it, just do it. Well, but I feel like the Heat save these things for when things are not going well. Like, well, like they, you know what? You know what's funny, and and Jeremy Tache and our network pointed this today that now they, they kind of they scheduled this, you know, during the Brian Flores press conference right. for a game that we kind of thought no one would care about and it would be difficult right. to sell tickets. And next thing you know, it's like eight versus nine, half game. Half game separates the playoffs between these two teams. If Orlando wins, Miami's all of a sudden out of the playoffs. If Miami wins, they might kind of cement their playoff place tonight. It's kind of incredible that you know it went from most utterly meaningless game to most important game of the year. And and I'm 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 across the state right now, so I plan that very well. Um, but I'll be I'll be back I'll, I'll be back on Thursday. All right, check out all of our coverage this week. I keep mentioning the website. Uh, should be April first. Our fools will be on April Fools. We're going to release the website. Um, I'll be at uh, I'm going to I'm going to double dip on Thursday, Chris. When I get back, I'm going to I'm going to hit uh, opening day and then and then swing over to uh, to the Heat game after that. So. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit both of those, and obviously we're going to be covering just about everything. So I hope you enjoy the episode, and uh, we will talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Fire in the Podcast. Thank you so much.